0: So, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Tonight, we're continuing in an ongoing study here in which we've kind of hunkered down on this particular passage. Just had the privilege of meeting a couple of folks that are from originally Jackson and they know the crew that was just here. And we're very pleased to have David and Vicki Pressler with us tonight. Would you give them a warm welcome? They're, they're trying to hide out. They're trying to hide out down here. Good to see you. And I forget who these guys are. I haven't seen them in so long. Ohio, the potter shed dudes, Satan and friends, Bill and Satan. I said I wouldn't do that anymore. Okay, it's a pretty good nickname. I guess I should explain that, shouldn't I? I have a spell check, and I I misspell every third word when I'm doing my messages. And every time I wrote Satan, I'd miss an A, and it would come out Stan. That's Stan, whom I call Satan because of that. It's just, uh, yeah, I know it's pretty bad. Hmm. What did some stowaway be quiet on? All right, First Corinthians, and also Acts. Did I say Acts chapter two? I'm acting kind of nutty tonight, and I haven't even had a zero bar, Brian. Acts chapter two, also. Tonight, the message, I actually have a title for tonight's message, which I don't usually do, but it's called, Everything Means Everything. Everything means everything. And I want to start out, before we get to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five with a quote, but we'll take a couple of moments of silent preparation first. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to redeem the time in these evil days, and we have the privilege, and we thank you for that, of approaching the throne of grace to receive help in time of need, and may we recognize our time of need, because we cannot understand your revealed truth unless it comes by inspired insight through the Holy Spirit, so may the Holy Spirit be active and present and may we be receptive to insights so that we can see in the mirror of the word the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in his face that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And it's by our gaze into that glass that we are transformed without trying, transfigured, without travailing into that same image. We're grateful for this opportunity and for all who've gathered here tonight under their freed and liberated volition. In Christ's name, amen. I've been returning to the study of the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, which... apocatastasis... And I didn't spell it right. Apo, katastasis. Yes, I did. And uh, this is found, as you know, it's only found one time in the New Testament scriptures in its noun form, and it's Acts chapter three in verse twenty-one. And Ilaria, the other Hilary, Ilaria Romelli did her homework on it, 16 years of homework, in order to put together a book called The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis. And I've been returning to that because the passage under consideration is probably the most oft referred to in that whole book, and it's 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verses 24 to 28. This is the farthest reach of the Scriptures in terms of an eschatological finality, in in terms of what the scripture calls the telos, the end, the completion, the goal of all of human history in Christ. And so because our series, Better Call Paul, has to do with answering the question, do Paul's epistles have the same impact as the uh, apocalypse of John? And do they have the same ability to communicate a vision of the universally saving significant Christ? And the answer we're finding so far is affirmative times 79. This is the 80th time we're looking at it. But Romelli wrote on page 3 of this doctrinal book. She says, in an important passage of Origin's commentary on John, and Origen, of course, is spelled with an E, Origin's commentary on John, Apocatastasis explicitly refers to the eventual restoration of all when there will be no evil left and all enemies will be no more enemies but friends in a universal reconciliation. But the last enemy, death, which is not a creature of God, will be annihilated according to Paul's revelation in 1 Corinthians 15:24 to 28. And we've got as far as 15:24 last night. She closes by saying the end, and that's the word ta tell us. And this is Origen's actual quote, to tell us the end will be at the so-called apoc- apocatastasis in that no one then will be an enemy. If it is true that quote, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, while the last enemy will be radically eliminated, death, and then the Greek phrase "eskatos ekthros katergetai ho thanatos" the last enemy does not submit under the feet of Jesus Christ, but is totally eradicated. So in 1 Corinthians 15.25, my translation so far, for he must reign. That word must is an emphatic, as we would have it, an emphatic indicates emphatic necessity. And it's the Greek word dei, D-E-I. He must reign. And the reason he must is because he is David's lord Where this comes from in Psalm one ten one, He is David's Lord. When David said, I heard the Lord say to my Lord, sit at my right side until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he must reign. Why does Jesus Christ reign? Because he is the, the Lord of David to whom the Lord, the Father, Yahweh the Father said, and addressed him directly in David's hearing in Psalm one ten one. So he must rule as king. Until the time when he. That's the father. Places all the enemies under his. The son's feet. Please notice it's the father. Who places the enemies at the son's feet. Therefore the son is doing kind of like what we're doing Waiting. In Hebrews 10.13, having been seated, having finished the work of the redemption of the world, the Lamb of God is enthroned, and he's waiting for his enemies to be placed under his feet, because he doesn't do it. The Father does. And if we understand what Psalm 110 says, the Father says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Jesus the Messiah, David said, And how did David know this? Because he was brought into the secret counsel of God as all prophets of the Old Testament were allowed to do. Proverbs 3.32. The scripture speaks of the upright speaking specifically of the prophets that they have the entrance into the secret counsel of God. And that means that they hear the voice of God and they see a vision of God. David heard the direct address of the Father echoing from the future in which Jesus Christ would be told to sit at his right hand enthroned until I, the Father, make all the enemies a footstool for your feet. So this refers to the last of the seven features of the Christ event. Remember them? I hope you remember them. We're hitting them on Sunday pretty emphatically. The seven features of the Christ event, every one of which is saving in its effect. The incarnation, followed by a life of vicarious obedience, meaning Jesus Christ, the faithful one, the righteous one, responds perfectly in obedience to God the Father for us, for us, his life of vicarious obedience culminates in the third feature of the Christ event, which is his death by crucifixion, the central and often sometimes considered the most important event. Although I don't think we can rule out resurrection or even enthronement. So, the third element of the Christ event, which is saving in its effect, is the death. Of Jesus Christ, which is the culmination of his obedience in Philippians 2 eight, because he became obedient even to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. There's the elevation and enthronement. Highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name so that at the mention of the name Jesus, every knee will bow. That's universal. And the bowing there is voluntary submission. It's voluntary and salvific submission. Every tongue will acknowledge. Praising is what it means. not just forceful, but Paul makes it praising, singing praise to God, that Yahweh is Jesus, to the glory of God the Father, which is another way of saying to the result being that God the Father will be all in all. That's the farthest reach of the scripture. And that's where sometimes we have to pin all of our hopes. when it seems like some of the hopes that we have or even all the hopes that we have in this life are dashed. We have the eschatological hope. And that stabilizes us in time and helps us to hope against hope or hope when hope doesn't seem to be in vogue or the thing to do. And that's what we're all about. That's what you do when you persevere. You hope against hope. You believe in the one who creates out of nothing and the one who raises the dead, Jesus, God, the father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That was Abraham's faith and God approved of it long before he was circumcised as Romans four will teach us in the future. When I teach Romans exegetically and it looks more and more like our father is calling me to do so. So again, placing all his enemies under his feet refers to the last of the seven features of the Christ event. Incarnation, a life of vicarious obedience culminating with his obedience to the death of the cross culminating followed by his burial and the empty tomb becomes a witness of his resurrection and then following the resurrection the ascension or the elevation the French translation of one of those passages says "élevé," which is elevation and then enthronement. This in Romans or 1 Corinthians 15:25 spe- specifically refers to the enthronement which was assured at the incarnation because he who is made a little lower than the angels for a little while was crowned with glory and honor. The enthronement began really at the crucifixion we learn from John's gospel if I'm lifted up the enthronement really began at the crucifixion followed by death and burial. Peter announced, and this is where I want to take up in Acts 2. Peter announced, and this really struck me today, when he was preaching on the Pentecostal sermon and he said to the fellow Israelites that day, he says, have you noticed David's tomb is still with us to this day? David's tomb. David was the one who heard the father say to the son in the future, sit at my right hand. And David was also the one who saw and placed the Lord. He foresaw the Lord always before his face through it all, through all of his trials in his life. He saw the Lord, so he saw and heard. Paul has also the name of a prophet, and he functions as a prophet, as we'll see in Romans, because when he went to Damascus, to the home of Ananias on Straight Street, After his confrontation with the Lord on the outskirts of Damascus, Ananias received a word from the Lord and said to Paul, God has chosen you to see the Holy One and to hear a word from him. And so he, Paul, saw and heard as David did. But Jesus, contrary to David, has vacated his tomb so that even his empty tomb is a sign of his enthronement. And that's when I began to think it would be helpful to consider the central fragment of Peter's Pentecostal proclamation, where he spoke of David's tomb, since it speaks eloquently, thanks to the Holy Spirit, of the Christ event. You'll pick up some of the features of the seven features of the Christ event in this. My translation, I did this this afternoon, translated this to, actually this morning. Acts 2.22, men, Israelites, actually he could say gentlemen because it's Andres, not Anthropoi. Men, Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was pointed out to you as being from God, By miracles, wonders, and attesting signs that God performed through him among you. Just as you yourselves know very well, this man, verse 23, though put to death according to the determined resolution and prescience of God's omniscience, nevertheless you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him verse twenty four but God resurrected him. Freeing him, please notice that resurrection means freedom, resurrected him, freeing him. Paul will later develop this into a practical application for every Christian in romans six seven to ten. And that's when we get the idea that justification isn't a legal imputation of righteousness as much as it is the gift of resurrection life, which is given to all human beings according to Romans 5.18 because of the obedience of Jesus Christ to the extent of death. And then he says... God resurrected him, freeing him from the birth pangs of death because it was not possible that he be held by it. That is by death, the last enemy to be destroyed. Verse 25, for David says this about him. I foresee before me the Lord through it all because he is at my right hand. I will never be shaken because of him. My heart was glad. When David saw the day of Messiah, his heart was glad. Jesus said to the Pharisees who wanted to kill him and to some of the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, who thought he should be executed in Romans, or in John 8.30 and 8.44, that they sought to kill him. He said, it's strange, you say that you're Abraham's children, but when Abraham saw my day, he rejoiced. But you want to kill me? little contradiction there David saw his day he foresaw the debut of messiah his resurrection his ascension his enthronement and he says my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced it's sort of like he said what paul said in romans 11:33 to 36 a doxology which i may be hitting on sunday morning Moreover, now, my body itself, said David, my body itself, my flesh, will be caused to live in confident expectation because you will not abandon my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to experience decay. Still quoting from Psalm sixteen. 8 through 11, he goes on in verse 27, you have made known, Norizo is an apocalyptic term for, term for revealed to me, you have revealed to me the paths of life, you fill me with gladness with your presence, literally your face, bringing up remembrances of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And so Peter finishes that pretty lengthy quotation of psalm sixteen, eight through 11 a psalm of david but he goes on to say this in verse 29 peter goes on to say gentlemen my brothers i know i can speak freely to you concerning the patriarch david that he died and was buried and that his tomb is with us to this day but our patriarch was also a prophet verse 30 Our patriarch was also a prophet. And as such, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him that from the fruit of his loins, one would sit down upon his throne. Verse 31, seeing this in advance. Peter's now interpreting the words of David, who said, I foresaw the Lord before my face. Seeing this in advance, David spoke as a prophet concerning the resurrection of Christ. Anastasios is the Greek word Anastasios Christu. He spoke of Anastasios to Christu. The resurrection of Christ. And that it was he who was not abandoned in Hades and whose flesh or body did not undergo decay. Verse 32, God raised up this Jesus and we are all witnesses of this. Later on it would be Paul's theological task to reveal that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It was for the rectification or justification of all of humanity. The setting of things right for all of humanity. Romans 425. Romans 518. I urge you to look at those verses. There are certain verses, and I mentioned this last night. There are certain verses that are being mentioned over and over and over again in BCP. Better call Paul. The reason for that is not just because I'm giving a few verses Every one of these verses, and I'm talking about Romans five eighteen and nineteen. I'm talking about 1 Corinthians fifteen, really nineteen through twenty eight. We're talking about Romans chapter eleven verse thirty two. We're talking about First Timothy 4, 10, 1 Timothy two four. The reason that these verses are, I keep repeating them, is not just because they're segregated and isolated verses. It's because hundreds of verses precede them, and they are the zenith or the climax. ...of those hundreds of verses. Paul goes through one of the most notoriously convoluted paths... ...in Romans 9 through 11... ...where people who only see it in part think it's an election... ...think it's a predestination, some to wrath and some to life... ...and they only pick out parts and they they develop their systems... ...based on some kind of Calvinism or come some kind of double predestination. But Paul's entire convoluted path... Aims at a climactic verse in Romans eleven thirty two, where he says I said all that to say that God closed everyone in closed everybody in Jews and Gentiles alike all of humanity under disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all that verse isn't just a verse that's the climax of what he's been working at since Romans 9 1 and that's the point he's making. And that's why he flies into an ecstatic doxology in 33 to 36, ending with all things, everything without exception, comes from him, through him, and back to him. Back to him. To him in restoration. To him in restitution, if you want to call it that. To him in reconciliation. In redemption. That's what Paul's all about. And that's why these verses i 'm not just beating a dead horse when I talk about romans five eighteen and nineteen because the obedience of the one man Jesus Christ leading to the justification of all human beings or the justifying life given to all human beings is the climactic passage that Paul began in one one all the way up to five eighteen and so these verses that i 'm giving as the main texts are not just isolated, segregated verses that you pick out to make a case. They are the climactic verses that summarize hundreds of verses before them. And even our, I I invented a new word today, Shakespeare made up words, I guess I can, zenithic, which means it's the adjective form of zenith. They are zenithic verses. They are the zenith of a building up of doctrine. And so, let's start again with verse 32 of Acts 2. God raised up this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Moreover, he has been exalted. He has been exalted. The word in the Greek can mean elevated, and the French word is élevé right here. Élevé in the French translation. Moreover, he has exalted or elevated to the right side of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. This is the instigation of divine mission two, the mission of God the Holy Spirit which is also universal or have you not read recently I will pour out my spirit on all flesh the second divine mission God the Holy Spirit Jesus received the promise from the father of the spirit but he received the promise of the Father by the Spirit in order to send the Spirit into all the world, in order to pour out the Spirit on all flesh. And the pouring out of the Spirit on anyone is always a salvific act of God beyond the command or the control of the human being. And so when he says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh... He's promising a salvific action by the Holy Spirit on all humanity. In fact, all of creation, for that matter. Joel 2.28 and following. So again, he has been exalted, elevated to the right side of God, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out as you can both see and, and hear. How could they see it and hear it? Well, there were flames of fire upon the 120 in the upper room. Flames of fire that appeared. A mighty rushing wind came in like the sound of a tornado, like a rushing train. They heard it. They heard men speaking in other languages. Languages that they could no way learn except over 20 or 30 years of study. But they were speaking it and they were speaking the gospel in their the languages of all the pilgrims that were there in Jerusalem. So he has poured out his spirit. As you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right side until I make your enemies of foot rest for your feet that's where we are in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. therefore he said let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified he's not speaking in a condemning tone here he's just saying you happen to crucify God in the flesh your Messiah but you know why because that was the best way to reveal how terrible and desperate the human condition is among especially people that think they're pious that God allowed something that he foreordained from eternity past as we if we could say it that way that his son be delivered over into godless men to be crucified and that he be delivered over by the most pious group of individuals on the earth shows the desperate condition of mankind you know what apocalypse means it doesn't mean destruction it means salvation apocalypse means salvation that is an act of God. It's an act of divine deliverance toward humankind, which is beyond humankind's control or command to make happen. That's what apocalypse is. So much for the world's interpretation of apocalypse. It's a divine. Act of God to deliver a desperate creation and a desperate humanity from a terrible condition. So you say, what is the justice of God? That's what I'm going to hopefully come into on Sunday or sometime soon. What is God's justice? God's justice means that he sees the whole creation in a state that is terribly wrong. So, his justice acts to set it right. God's justice isn't destructive, it's creative. God's justice is not damning, but rectifying. God, as the king, enacts an act of righteousness because he sees that all have gone aside, all together and at once have turned aside from him. And the whole creation is under a terrible condition. Justice, therefore, once again, justice sees the terrible wrong state and sets about to set it right. If you remember Josie Wales, when he spoke to Bloody Bill and Bloody Bill said, we're going up to Kansas and set things right. Well, of course, that was a human way of doing it. But God's justice enacts a deliverance that is beyond the creature's control or command and really has nothing to do with the creature's volition. There's, that's a sticking point, isn't it? So here we are, Psalm 110, one quoted at the climax of Peter's speech, quoted in one of the most climactic passages in Paul, for he must Verse 25, he must reign. Why? Because he's the one that David heard the father say to him, you will sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. Until the time when he, the father, places all the enemies under his, the son's feet. Please notice that the first he in that last clause is the father. The second is the son. Until the time when he, the father, places all the enemies under his, the son's feet. It's important that we recognize that it's the father that places or subjects everything under his son's feet. It's the father. And I'll tell you why in a minute. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six. the last enemy, which will be brought to nothing, is death. Why does Paul single out death? Because death doesn't voluntarily submit under Jesus Christ's feet. Every creature does, angelic and human. All creation finds its liberation there. But death isn't a part of God's creation. It isn't a creature of God, so it's annihilated. The last enemy doesn't submit, it's annihilated, which is death. Brought to nothing is one of the words, because death is not a creature of God. It is the one name, in fact, death is the one name, along with Hades, which is kind of its surname in Revelation 20. 11 to 14 or 11 to 15 the one name Whoever's name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire But that one name there's only one name and that name is death Also known as Hades the place of death when Jesus died and rose again He became Lord of both the living and the dead. He is the Lord of those who are dead in their sins as well as dead in their graves He is the Lord of the living, those who have been made alive with Christ in this age, right in the center of the evil age, God's messianic age has invaded and given the life of the coming age to certain people like you and me. He's the Lord of the living. Whether the living are those who are on the earth in their mortal bodies, alive with Christ through regeneration, or whether they are those who have passed from this life into the presence of Christ and are really alive or whether they are in the future the resurrected bodies of all humanity. And we've been teaching and demonstrating from the scripture that the resurrection of all humanity is guaranteed and inevitable because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that that resurrection does not divide humanity into the damned and the justified, but it is one resurrection unto life. In 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two. Correcting the notion that those who do evil are resurrected to damnation, we have understood John 5:29 to be those who have done the evil will be raised to their acquittal. The punishment of evildoers, as Moltmann rightly said, is transformation by the grace of God. The judgment of evildoers is their acquittal through Jesus Christ, who came at the end of the ages once and for all, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, the implications of these things, and it's taken me 40 or 50 years to get to these implications, and that means I've had to leave a camp or two along the way. So you go into a camp, you say hello the camp, and they say, Come on in. And then you go to the camp, and around the campfire they start telling stories about a partial redemption. And you say, Thanks for the hospitality, I gotta move on. And I do that again and again, and I've done it about four or five times. And it's my last desire in the world to ever start a new camp. So forget about it. Brought to nothing. So the second death, which the scripture speaks about in Revelation 20, ultimately is the death of death, brought about by the resurrection of Jesus and then the universal resurrection of the dead. And though it can be argued, as we have done, and as Nick Ansel has done properly, that Revelation 20:11 to 15 is about the second death of old Jerusalem in AD 70, the first being in 586 B.C., the universal apocalyptic backdrop behind that picture portrays the end of death and Hades, which is followed up in Revelation 21 to 22 by the onset of the new creation and the coming down of the new Jerusalem, which will eventually cover the entire universe. And the Lamb is the lamp that lights that universe. Revelation is an apocalypse. Listen carefully. This is really where it's coming together now. Revelation is an apocalypse. An apocalypse, by definition, is about a universal or cosmic act of deliverance by God beyond the control or the command of any creature. I'll say that again. Revelation, called the apocalypse of John, or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ given to John, Revelation, which we finished studying a while ago, is an apocalypse An apocalypse by definition is about a universal or cosmic act of deliverance by God beyond the control or the command of any creature. This act of deliverance is a deliverance from powers that enslave the creation and specifically human beings, the totality of humanity powers like sin, which Paul almost re- always refers to in the singular Sin is a power. The flesh, also known as the IDF, the impulsive desire of the flesh. The impulsive desire of the flesh is not just sensual or sexual. By definition, the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, which asserts itself against the spirit, is the desire to assert oneself against God and against one's neighbor. And to speak boastfully of oneself, etc. In other words, the flesh is that which fuels the Adamic ontology. The flesh is especially active among the so-called pious, the so-called religious, the so-called righteous who are self-righteous. Because they assert themselves against God and their neighbor more than anybody else does. As we're seeing from fanatical religion. This last enemy, then, is death. And that is also a power from which humanity needs to be delivered. It can't deliver itself. The last enemy, it should be noted, does not submit to the Lord Jesus, but is annihilated. Now, listen carefully to this, because this is something that preachers, when they start to understand the redemption that's in Christ... They might do what I did, go to the doctrine of annihilation. Instead of an endless hell, the annihilation of people or the eradication of the soul of people. But that's, of course, a false doctrine. I entertained it for approximately three weeks. We talked about this a little bit last night. Let me just say it this way. If we're going to speak correctly of annihilation, As an eschatological doctrine, we will speak not of the annihilation of people or of souls, but of death itself. Is there a doctrine of annihilation? Yes, the annihilation of death, not of people, not of souls. God is not in the business of the destruction of his creation. Rather, he's in the business of creating that which does not exist to make it exist, God is not in the business of the destruction of His creation, but the transformation of His creation. Justice isn't another attribute against love or in distinction from God's love. Justice is a function of God's love. God justifies the ungodly, that's what He does. It's what you do if you're God, says the Geico commercial. If you're God, it's what you do. What's he do? He justifies. He sets right the ungodly. And he also loves to use ungodly material to work with, like the persecutor of the church. Let me work with him, Paul. Let me call Paul. We better call Paul. And let him be the prime messenger to the pagans of this apocalyptic revelation of the righteousness of God. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God, and the righteousness of God is not an attribute of God, but the act of God in Christ by which the creation is delivered. You know what's happening? In this little crowd here tonight, the gospel is being recovered From centuries, it's like an archaeology project. We're pulling the gospel up from centuries of dirt that have been piled on it by the pious, mostly. God is not in the business of the destruction of his creation, but only the destruction of that which is not of his creation, which is precisely death. The gesture toward Psalm one ten one continues here with the use of the word enemy, namely the last of the enemies spoken of by God the Father in his word to his enthroned son in Psalm 110.1, an oracle that David heard even as he sees the Lord, foresees him before his face throughout all of his trials. And now I'm going to close with this, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, Paul moves to another psalm passage. Now, among other things, what I'm going to do tonight is prove to you that God leads me to go buy chocolate bars. But, and I know sugar's bad. So is the sun. So is water. So is air. Everything's bad now. So huddle up in a little room. in a time when everything's for sale, including water, including air. So, that's just a side thing. I'm going to prove that in a minute. But Paul moves now, from in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, he moves to another psalm passage, namely Psalm 8, 5 through 7. It's amazing how much of the New Testament writers make of the psalms. The whole book of Hebrews is essentially... An exegesis of a couple of Psalms, Psalm two one, Psalm one hundred ten one, Psalm one hundred ten four. You, he says to the same son who's seated at his right hand, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's exegeted by the writer of the Hebrews. It's amazing how much hay can be made out of the Psalms, because Jesus said in his resurrected body, reading from the Psalms, he said, These testify of me. That's me. The son of righteousness arising with healing in his rays. That's me. He could have said it must have been fantastic hearing him talk about all those places in the scripture. Now, what do you slow-witted disciples think of that? Uh, uh. Yes, you slow of heart to believe. That's me. Again, that's me. So. By this change from psalm 110 to 1 to 8 5 through 7 he moves from the prophetic future to the realized present it's ingenious and incidentally you don't say that's genius you say that's ingenious genius is a noun ingenious is an adjective so if you're going to say that is something and describe it as an adjective you don't say that is genius you say that is ingenious see i'm an english teacher I majored in English in college, so I have the right to be a linguistic legalist and an effete linguistic snob. Now, I'm only kidding. Paul moves from the eventual subjection of the enemies of Christ and the annihilation of death. In Psalm 8, 5 to 7, he speaks of a present reality that everything has been put under Christ's feet, by this, the now and not yet principle is preserved in Paul. Nevertheless, the apostles' main aim is to show the universality. I refer you to last night's message when the word all was emphasized in a double inclusive, doubly inclusive way in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. All, all, all without exception. And so once again, Paul's main aim is to show the universality of the submission to the Son by showing that the Father is the only one who is excluded from that submission. Now, if the Father, who is the creator God, is excluded from being submitted to the Son, then all of creation, in distinction from the Father, has to be under the sun's feet and has to be submitted to the son and has to be part of his redemptive plan. Now this is important because of something that happened last night to yours truly. After I eased on out of the parking lot very carefully and slowly and right, Judy, Jude, Hey Jude, something happened. I listened to the radio. And heard an old familiar voice. Now when God the father. Becomes all in all. It is not until. All is brought into voluntary subjection to his son. Then he who said he was pleased to dwell in his son is pleased to dwell in all that is in his son, which is everything, universally speaking. All things. All things having been recapitulated in Christ, Ephesians 1.10. So here we have the conjunction of several Greek A words. We have... I won't write them all out here tonight because it'll take me past the time. We have anakephaliosis Ephesians 1.10, the recapitulation of tapanta, everything in Christ. anakephaliosis Paul's word for the apokatastasis, which is Acts 3.21. Then there's anastasis, or anastasis, which is the resurrection, which we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 15.12, and 13, and 21, etc. Then there's the word apolutrosis, apolutrosis usually translated redemption, but apolutrosis lutrosis means a universal redemption enacted in Christ in 1 Corinthians one thirty. So that's another one of the A words that describes this universal reconciliation. Finally, there is apokatalasai ta panta, the universal reconciliation of Colossians one twenty. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For you see, he has put all things under his feet David foresaw that happening we declare that having happened although as Paul said the resurrection has already happened in Christ and yet each in his own division there are three divisions the aparche division which has its own standard flag and that's Christ aparche the firstfruits then those who, thus that belong to him at his coming the parousia division with their flag that says Perusia, Then comes the Telos division. Not F-Troop as I said before. But the Telos division are the rest of humanity raised to their acquittal in the resurrection. And Christ is the Telos. So he embodies the believers in the Perusia division. And he embodies the unbelievers in the Telos division. So there is a universal resurrection to life. Not one that is half damned. And half justified. God doesn't bake any half baked cakes. And God doesn't create something in order to have it spend eternity in a blast furnace. So, He has put all things under His feet. Whose feet? Well, if you were to look at those feet, you'd find that nails have pierced them. The Son of Man's feet according to Psalm 8, 5 to 7. Though Paul never refers directly to Jesus as the Son of Man, like the Gospels do 52 times, and as Rev the Book does with reference to Daniel seven thirteen to 14, Paul does certainly refer to him as the Son of Man here because he's quoting something in which the Son of Man is revealed to be the one under whose feet all the enemies are coming. And sometimes, and this is important for interpretation of the scripture, it's also important for communicators of the word. Sometimes an oblique or indirect gesture can be as forceful or even more forceful than a straightforward declaration. And so Paul refers to apocatastasis, pantone, many times in his epistles, in all his epistles but never by using the word apocatastasis. His oblique references have more force than a straightforward reference would have. But now I want to close with this verse 27b. But when it says everything, panta, you know that word, don't you? When it says everything, is subjected under him, it is obvious that the one who subjected everything to him is the exception. Now, this is what I'll tell you about a curious turn of events. Last night on my way home from here, I caught J. Vernon McGee on the radio. And I like him. I still like him. I I cut my teeth on him because his books were free. Delving through Daniel, reveling through Revelation, learning through Leviticus, leaping through Luke. I don't know if it was, he, had, he had a name, for. but you could get the books and you could get them free. And I never heard of that before. So I got them all. And then I listened to him on the radio, do the five years through the Bible. And because I like this preacher and because I cut my teeth on his books as a young believer, I decided to listen. And I was especially intrigued that he was doing an exegesis of Acts chapter three. He started right off in one, and if I hadn't gone to Sheets to get a Hershey bar, I wouldn't have heard the last part because I would have been home before the, he got to three twenty one. So God led me to her to Sheets to buy two Hershey bars. So when I came back out and started the car up, there he was. He was in Acts three twenty one, which is apocatastasis Panton. But you know what he said? He did a good job until he got to Acts 3.21 in what he called the restitution of all things. His comments went immediately to refute those who believe in a universal restoration based on this verse. And this was his refutation. He explained that all things just meant the things that God was going to restore. <laughs> so in other words, all things means The some things that God planned to restore. And that's, that's a little, but then you know what he gave an as an explanation, as a scriptural explanation. He said, Paul said in another place, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he said, see, all things doesn't mean everything universally there. It just means Paul lost everything that was dear to him. That's just a little category of things. So he gets it down to the restitution of all things is when God restores the things that he planned to restore, which was all the good people probably, or all the people who believed, or all the people who behaved. He didn't say that, but so far he's used Paul. So he went on to say again, that, and this is Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Paul suffered the loss of all things, and that obviously didn't mean everything universally. But I would reply and say, Paul never had everything universally to suffer the loss of them. But more importantly, and that seems to be a stock argument among the teachers in his particular camp, that's a camp that I said bye-bye to a long time, and I will never, ever, ever go back to a camp of a partial redemption belief ever but this very verse in 1st Corinthians fifteen twenty seven gives the lie to that interpretation remember I said he was good up till now by explicitly stating that the only exception to tapanta is the father the father is the only exception to the all things so the all things means everything except the Father, which means all created reality. And so everything means everything, Jay Vernon. And I say everything means everything to every camp I've ever been in, enjoyed, was blessed by, and laughed. Everything means everything. Did you hear this? It's the Father that submits everything to the Son, and the Father is the only exception to what is subordinate to the Son. So the all things means everything except the Father, which means all created reality is submitted to Jesus Christ, who then submits all that's subjected to him to the Father so that the Father who was once pleased to dwell in his Son now is pleased to dwell in all that his Son embodies which is everything. Get it? If you don't, the Holy Spirit will teach you. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity once again to look into the perfect law of liberty for the Scriptures are a Torah of freedom. We are free because when Christ was resurrected, he was freed from the pangs and pains of death. And we thank you, Father, for this assurance. We're grateful that now in our 80th hour, we are able to see with the eyes of our heart a little more clearly an envisagement or a vision of, so- of sorts of your son, is all saving glory at your right hand and we recognize father that it's this vision without which your own people are perishing without this vision without living in the light of this vision your own people continue in the Adamic ontology while they try to reconfigure it through religion or through morality or through worship or through enthusiasm So may this vision permeate your church, your people, and then spread to all mankind in this generation and the ones to follow.